Welcome, esteemed audience, to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, as you know, the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the greatest novel ever written by a man. Uh, if you're a fan of Batman, if you're a fan of Iron Man, and honestly, who is not a fan of Batman or Iron Man? You want to see a character that's like them uh, at age uh, 11. Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is your book. It is available as a paper book. Uh, paper book, paperback, an audiobook, and it is free to download whenever you're listening or watching to this as an ebook. The sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, is coming out shortly. So make sure you get your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, get ready for the sequel, and then possibly rumored another sequel after that coming later this year. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written a young adult novel altogether now, a zombie story. Uh, do not let the fact that I call myself a middle grade ninja fool you. This is a very frightening, very violent book. Uh, so if you like zombie, if you're a fan of The Walking Dead, if you like zombies and you like your zombies violent and me, all together now a zombie story is where you're going to get that. I've also got all right now a short zombie story. Uh, and if you're into horror, uh, check out my adult novel, The Book of David, assuming that you're uh, old enough to read adult horror. It is a five-volume serial horror novel. It's five chapters. The first chapter of The Book of David is free to download whenever you're listening to this. And, of course, the paperbacks are also available. Uh, it's a story about a, an atheist who buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious prophecies involving flying saucers. So you know right away whether or not you're the sort of person that that story appeals to. If you are, check out the first volume. It's free. Uh, if you would, leave a review. That is always appreciated. Uh, coming up on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast slash YouTube show, make sure you find your way back here on Friday. We're going to have uh, Middle Grade author Tommy Greenwald here. Uh, so that's February 22nd. Tommy Greenwald is going to be here. That's going to be a great episode. Uh, coming into March, we're going to have uh, literary agent Jennifer March Soloway. Uh, we'll have author Stephen K. Smith. We're going to have uh, author Lamar Giles, uh, and then we're going to have Kathy Appel, which I'm extremely excited about talking to all of those people. Make sure, stay tuned, just like, subscribe, do all that stuff that uh, that you need to do to keep in the know about what's going on with the podcast. As always, if you're looking for more information, uh, check out every uh, back or check out the back catalog. Check out additional interviews with authors, with literary agents, professionals, anybody you want to read about at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, today, I am very excited. We're going to be talking with one of my favorite middle grade authors, Daniel Kinney. Uh, Daniel, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Rob? I am excellent. Tell, uh, I'm terrible with summarizing other people's books and summarizing sure. other people's biographies. Uh, yeah. So right here at the top, uh, for people that uh, haven't been actively stalking you online for years, uh, tell the esteemed audience a little bit about yourself and your books. Sure. My name is Dan Kenny. I'm, you know, middle 40s. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, still live there. I met my wife in junior high. We got married after college. We have eight kids between the ages of 18 and five. Anna, Isaac, Jude, Brendan, Daniel, Rachel, Fulton, Joshua. Um, I used to be a high school teacher. I taught high school math and I taught high school theology. So I majored in math in college and have a master's degree in theology. Uh, at some point, you know, the whole having kids, teacher's salary just didn't work. So my wife and I switched places seven years ago. Uh, she became the full-time, you know, away from the home worker. She's a nurse practitioner. She's great at what she does. 
and I became the full-time stay-at-home parent. I'm marginal at what I do. Uh, and so as I was taking care of these kids, big, crazy house, I needed an outlet. I needed something else I could do. And one of the things I loved to do with my kids was tell stories and to read stories. And I'd loved books all my life. And, and one day one of them said, Hey dad, why don't you turn that story into a book? And another one of them said, yeah, dad, you should do that. And that was like a personal challenge. And I had thought about writing books, but I had never actually thought about writing fiction. And so I thought, what the heck? So 2011, 2012, I started jumping in trying to write fiction for the first time, really. And, uh, and so what I decided to do was write the kinds of books that my kids would enjoy. And, and that placed me at the time kind of in the middle grade uh, and chapter book area. And that's most of what my books have been. Uh, more recently, I've done more picture books. And I do have a pen name in which I've written the first two books of a adult cozy mystery series. Uh, all told, I've got, you know, 35 or so published books. And again, most of them are for kids, middle grade, chapter books, picture books. That's that's what I do. So right away, I'm going to call out uh, some writers I've been working with, and I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about a writing workshop that I've got going because I've had them uh, write questions to, to ask you, and we'll do that before the, the end. They're uh, listening now, so they're the contenders. Hi, contenders. Thank thanks for uh, tuning in. Um, but some of them are giving me excuses. Oh, I, I can't write today. I have a child. I have two children. Uh, and here you are regularly publishing books and you have eight children. Um, so the, the first question I've got for you is, is how does an author as prolific as you, uh, what's your workday look like and how are you staying so prolific with all of your other responsibilities? Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, once you have eight kids, uh, you realize you know, everybody's busy. Uh, I think back to when I was in college and when I was in college, I thought I was busy. And then when you, you know, years later, you're not in college and you're, you have eight kids and you're running around and you realize, wow, I really wasn't that busy. The point is that we all fill our lives up. You know, in college, I may not have had eight kids, but I was filling my time up with other stuff. I wasn't crazy when I thought I was busy. I was just busy with different stuff than I am. So I think the first thing I always tell people who say, oh, gosh, I only have two kids. You have eight. How do you do it? Is, okay, settle down. We're all busy. Everybody's busy. And uh, I think that's important to address because sometimes I, as a writer, have looked at the John Grishams of the world or other people who at one point, you know, just doing the one book a year, and I thought to myself, oh, wouldn't that be ideal? I just go out to my secret writing hut and I write for three hours and then I walk the dog and I have coffee and I just live a literary write life. And you know, that's, that's not, once you're in the indie world and you meet like successful writers, you realize that's not most people's reality. That, that may be a few people out there, but even the John Grishams of the world work their tail off. And I think the thing you realize is that to be successful at writing, you have to work really hard. This sort of dream scenario where you just write a couple hours a day and poof, all your dreams come true. If it happens to anybody out there, 
it's the exception and not the rule. Because when you get involved in indie writing forums and you meet people, whether romance novelists or mystery or middle grade, you realize people who are successful work really, really hard. And so the number one thing I would say is, well, you have to work hard. And number two, me personally, I'm not focused every day. Uh, I just know that's not my life. Uh, I'm not somebody who's going to crank out 2,000 words every day. But at the beginning of each year, I give myself an idea of sort of the projects I want to accomplish. And in order for me to accomplish them, there comes times where I have to write a lot. And so there might come a time where I'm behind deadline and I have to write 10,000 words in a day. Uh, but there will be many days where I don't write anything. The number one thing for me, though, is I love making things. That's what I love doing. I love making things. And right now, the thing I'm spending most of my time doing when I'm not, you know, managing a household is I like making books. I aspire to, to one day write 10,000 words. I'm a slow poke. I, if I get my five, 500 words for middle grade, a thousand words, if I'm, if I'm writing for adults, but I do it every day, I feel like sure. John Grisham, Stephen King. I, I, I couldn't stop patting myself on the back. How proud I am of myself. Uh, but um, 10,000 words, what, what does a day that's, that includes 10,000 words look like? How many hours are you writing to get that? Oh, I mean, all day. Uh, but but let me be clear, I would way rather, and I think I would be much more productive and more successful if I just wrote 500 words a day. I just think if that's what I did, if I was more focused and more disciplined and I did that, I think it would be more productive. I am by nature kind of flighty. I see the shiny new object. I'm kind of all over the place. At times, it takes me a lot to kind of get to the keyboard. So when, what that usually means is I'm behind, I'm on deadline, I tell my wife, I have to get away this weekend. So I get to the coffee shop early that morning, I ride all morning, then I go to a different coffee shop and I ride all afternoon, and then I go to some like, the best place for me to do the late night writing when I'm on deadline are hotel lobbies. That's my super secret joint to go for late night writing. Really? Hotel what is it about a hotel lobby that, that, that gets you going? I love it. There's a certain amount of life going on. There's interesting people coming. There's always good Wi-Fi. They don't care if I'm there. You know, they're not closing at nine. It's not like Panera and I got to get out of there before nine. I know I can just chill and get everything done I need to. So a 10,000 word day, which doesn't happen often, but I've had to do it multiple times, is a day where I'm at multiple different venues, Saturday, start at 7, come home at 11, that kind of thing. I'm going to have to try that out. I've done multiple right. coffee shops. I have never tried a hotel lobby, so that's next on my, my bucket list of things I need to try. Right, totally. It, it makes you feel a little desperate, you know, like... Uh, <laughs> No, I, I feel that way. I, I've just been feeling it in coffee shops. I need to feel it in a hotel lobby. <laughs> uh, hotel lobbies are good. So uh, so that's what it looks like. But I honestly, I think the people who regularly go on Kindle boards and every week, you know, they check in and they say, 
you know, I wrote my thousand words a day or Wayne Stinnett has the 5,000 words a week club. That is such a better way to do it than the way I do it. Uh, but what I would say is when I'm not writing, I'm, I'm usually thinking about writing or thinking about doing books. You know, a lot of times I'm with my kids traveling places. And so writing isn't necessarily really practical, but I always have a piece of paper or a notebook and I'm jotting down ideas, thinking ahead, thinking about characters or thinking about new picture book titles. Uh, I just really love to make things, like I said. And, you know, if, if you were to put like a workshop in front of me and a bunch of wood, then I would just be making furniture. But right now I'm making books and that's what I like to do. So when we're talking 10,000 words, are you doing that longhand or are you typing? Typing. Yeah, I I was not a kid who grew up with computers. And so like at the beginning of high school, I would try to make other people type my papers and that didn't go over well. So my, my parents forced me to take a typing class, like a real typing class with the home row. And then over time, you know, you just get better. And so I'm a quick typist now. And uh, so, you know, that doesn't hold me back. And I like typing and I like going fast. Um, I just wish I was more disciplined and did it every day. Like I always think, oh, if I just did a thousand words, that's a heck of a lot of fiction in one year. But uh, alas, I just fall down at some point. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, here we are, and I'm a, as I've confessed, I'm a slower writer than most. Uh, it shames me uh, when I talk with other indie authors, especially I was talking with Susan K. Quinn a couple episodes oh, back, uh, yeah. ashamed of, of, of my productivity levels compared to her. Um, but you and I started publishing, I, I think I was the year after, okay. um, but about the same time. But here I'm uh, coming up on uh, book number 10 versus 34. Uh, so I, I think you're doing just fine. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. But you know, I have smaller books and I have picture books. So it's it's not apples to apples. You got some really substantial fiction in there. So it's it's you know, you know, it's it's probably closer than you think, be my guess. So but for those that are now uh, checking our Amazon pages and, and counting, yes, I count all five chapters of the Book of David as five books, and you would too if you'd written them and, re and revised them. <laughs> so, I would too. You uh, mentioned deadlines. Um, so for those of us that want to be Daniel Kenny in our next life, um, when uh, when you sit down and you're, you know, um, like you said, trying to figure out what 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 books you want to publish for the year, what your year is going to look like. How detailed a plan are you setting for yourself, and how firm are those deadlines? Yeah. So the the detailed plan, I use the really important back of the Burger King receipt, and I start sketching out exactly what I would dream to accomplish in in the upcoming year. And uh, it's usually 10 to 12 books and I never hit it. Uh, I always fall short, but I usually end up getting several books out then. Um, so again, the plan is I'm just guessing as to what I want to accomplish. Uh, a lot of that just has to do with how I'm feeling or what I have the energy for. Uh, I was thinking about this. Um, one of the reasons I think I've been able to put out quite a few stuff um, is because I just kind of do what I have energy for. And that doesn't make for a focus plan at all. I was thinking of Stephen Smith, who you're going to have uh, pretty soon, right? 
Uh, we're going to have him uh, March 7th. March 7th, Stephen Smith will be here. Uh, so I have a little one over there. Sorry. Um, Josh is hanging out. Hi, Josh. So Stephen K. Smith, uh, he's kind of a writer friend of mine. I've never met him in person, but we've talked numerous times online. And he's a guy I always kind of point people towards. Uh, as a really good example of someone that I would, you know, like if I was going to start all over, I think he stays pretty focused. Uh, he, he mostly stays within one series, although I know he has other interests. And I think he's really good at what he does. Uh, I think I probably would have been better served staying pretty focused in a couple series, but that's not at all what I've done. I just kind of do what I want to do. And the, the benefit to that is I get more done. Because when you're, you have energy for things, you work more quickly. It's when I feel like, oh, I have to do the next book in this series that I slow down, that it takes me time. There's more inertia. So uh, for me, the way to be me is to just do whatever you want to do. You have a big plan, and then you just kind of do what you have energy for. Uh, but I'm not sure it's the best way forward. I don't know. I mean, what's the point of being an indie author if you're not going to do what you want to do, right? That's uh, right. part of our whole creed is we, we have total freedom. We got no strings. Kind no, of. No, it is. And it's true. And I love that. Um, however, I'm trying to find for myself that right kind of intersection between creative freedom and money. Uh, I think a lot of people are trying to find that sweet spot. Uh, I haven't quite found it yet. Uh, so when I say it probably would have better served me to stay a little bit more focused, I mean more from just kind of a monetary perspective. Uh, I've, I've taken a lot of chances, tried a lot of things, done a lot of different things. Most of them do not pay out. Uh, and I'm okay with that generally. You, um, without, without getting crass, cause I, I never think it's okay to straight point blank. How much money do you make? Uh, sure. I'm going to ask an author that, but I know that you had, um, published a post, uh, on, uh, Hugh Howey's, uh, site back in, I think 2014, 2015, somewhere in there, um, where you said that at one point, I think you were making around $3,000 a month from your fiction. Is, is yeah, that yeah. still holding true or is that kind of up and down? Yeah, so that was summer of 2015, and I wrote him a letter just because, uh, an email, just because I hadn't seen a lot of examples of middle grade. And I just wanted to tell him that, you know, for the previous two or three months, you know, I had been making, you know, two to three thousand bucks. And I just wanted him to know it was possible. And then he said, hey, do you think you could, you know, think we could post this as a blog post? And I said, sure. Uh, so that's where that came from. Now, at that time, I also had some guesses as to what I thought might happen. I thought maybe I had been lucky, right? Um, maybe I had just hit a, you know, a, a good patch, which happens. Um, and I also didn't know what was going to happen to Amazon or Kindle Unlimited. It just so happened that I think that month or later that month, was the first new iteration of Kindle Unlimited. And as soon as that first change happened, my income dramatically dropped. Uh, so pre that first Kindle Unlimited, you know, I was, I was looking at it like, whoa, okay, this is working. And if I just add books, this is gonna work even better. 
Well, again, I was, I was new, and then you realize quickly that's not exactly how this works. Especially in the indie space, we're sort of always reacting to Amazon or other bookstores or booksellers and what, what they're doing or what's working and what's not. Uh, so I would say that I have never found a way to make a full-time living. Um, the money's gone up and down. I keep trying to find a way to make a full-time living. Uh, and that's kind of the way I would say it. Yeah. Uh, so never quite found that sweet spot to make that full-time living. I always make money. Uh, it's money that's helpful, but I've usually been the type that I'm kind of usually reinvesting all that money back in the business, trying to, new books, trying advertising, trying to figure out that right mix of things that's going to kind of make it pop for me. Uh, and I'm still searching. I haven't quite found it yet. Well, what, um, I've got a lot of questions on the back of that. I'm going to, I'm going to keep you busy all day. And I apologize um, to esteemed audience. I am just getting, hopefully getting over um, a case of Captain Trips, the, the super death flu. Um, so if I, if I cough, I'm going to try very hard not to cough. You might notice that my usual Kermit-like voice is a little bit more Tom Waits-like on this particular episode. Uh, my apologies. Um, so when we're uh, talking about things that you have had success with, um, what, um, how many books have you found that you need to publish in order to be successful, in order to get some traction on Amazon and elsewhere? And are, are you wide? Are you Amazon exclusive? I am Amazon exclusive, except for a couple books in my uh, Project Gemini series, which I went wide with just so I could offer a couple of them free in an attempt to try and get people into the series. Uh, so mostly I've always been with Amazon exclusive. The, the real answer is I don't know the answer to this question. Uh, everybody who asks me about middle grade, I mean, it's it's a real challenge. It's just so different than adult genre fiction for the obvious reasons. Everybody who writes middle grade understands why. Uh, you know, the person who is reading romance or thrillers or cozy mysteries, uh, they are the person choosing those things. And if they are a power reader or a whale reader, as some people call them, then if you just meet certain expectations, they, they oftentimes will give you a shot. Middle grade and, you know, it's a totally different uh, deal. You know, you have kids who oftentimes want to make their own decisions, uh, but they oftentimes don't have the ability to purchase books. Uh, so it's a totally different landscape. But within that, you know, if you think about kind of the typical Barnes & Noble way of uh, selecting uh, youth readers away from YA, they normally call like ages 7 to 12. And to call middle grade 7 to 12 isn't real truthful. Actually, the way Barnes and Nobles does it is a little bit more truthful. Youth readers, 7 to 12. What I have personally found in the advice I normally give people who are indie is you're going to have more luck if you go after the younger segment of the youth readers rather than the older segment of the youth readers. So the older segment of the youth readers would be ages 10, 11, 12. That's really classic middle grade. 
But I think that's the hardest group to go after effectively uh, via Amazon, via via Indie, uh, because I think that is where the bookstore and library um, infrastructure is strongest. I think they are most well suited to get hands uh, books in the hands of that age group. Now, what I think is a little different about the ages seven, eight, nine, and even ten. There's some overlap there. Is I think you now have an age group of kids who the parents are oftentimes not only buying, but the parents have quite a bit of say in choosing those books as well. This is my theory. And I think that a lot of times, if you meet the expectation of the parents uh, effectively, that I think they are the ones who might give your book a shot for their kids. Because that's an age group where parents just want kids to read, right? I just want to get them reading. I just want to get them reading. And at age 10, 11, 12, either the kid is making their own decision and telling mom and dad what to get for them, or many times the kid is just off to video games instead. Uh, so I think my, uh, in terms of how many books, I don't know. In terms of what age group of readers, I think I do sort of know. And I think it's that 8, 9, 10. And so what um, is just because um, their parents are a little bit more willing to take a chance on a, on a shorter ebook that's available? Is it the kids themselves have a little bit more access to the Kindles when they're not locked into the reading list and things through school? Maybe some of that. I mostly think it's that parents are saying to themselves, I just want Johnny to read. I just want Mary to read. And you know, I either know she likes this and there's 10 more in the series, so I'm going to get more. Um, or I think this would be the kind of book they'd like. And it kind of meets my expectations of what a reluctant reader might want or something like that. Uh, that seems to be what does well. The, the other thing I would say is sometimes you'll see an indie do really well in middle grade who targets the older middle grade, especially if it has some sort of crossover appeal to adults. Uh, so I think of people who have done well writing middle grade fantasies. Now, lots of people have written middle grade fantasies. Most of them don't do well, but you at least have a chance there. I think if you kind of cross over to that adult fantasy audience, that may catch a little bit of that. So I think that's another plausible way through. You know, one nice thing I've, I've got going for me, and I was, uh, I've talked about this before, um, I'm very excited about my passionate middle grade uh, readers. Uh, there mm -hmm. are not as many uh, as there are for the horror series, um, but but they're there, they're passionate, they're, they're there for Banneker. They, they send me photos of themselves dressed as the character. But oh, then what uh, cracks me up is some of the folks that read the book of David all together. Now the horror stories, the really nasty stuff, will yeah. run out of those. And then they'll, ah, that Banneker Bones book is free. And then they'll send me an email. And they don't want to know about horror. They're like, when's the next Banneker coming? I'm like, great. I'm getting the adult readers. Oh. I'll take them. I'm happy to have you all. <laughs> that is fantastic. That means you can write. Uh, theoretically. <laughs> if I can, it hasn't stopped me. <laughs> so, um, 
another uh, question I wanted to, you know what, before I forget, I promised myself I would make sure I ask you right up front because I got an email. I chatted with our last episode. I chatted with literary agent John Cusick for two hours and yeah. never once asked him about flying saucers. It was a terrible failing on my part. Um, so Dan Kenny, before we go any further with all your publishing expertise, all the things we could be talking about, nope, let's do this. Have you seen uh, Flying Saucer and what is your stance on Flying Saucers? Okay, so I have never seen a Flying Saucer, but I'm 100% in on Flying Saucers. So I, uh, I totally believe in them. Uh, I actually met John one time. We had lunch in Omaha, Nebraska of all places. Uh, he was coming through town because he was going to a retreat that he was one of the agents for, you know, doing critiques. And uh, me and a group of other writers sat down with him and another agent and had a quick bite to eat. So he's a cool guy, but I can't speak for him. I'd like to say whether or not he'd come down pro or anti-flying saucer, but I'm not sure. Uh, but for me, I totally believe in him. Just haven't seen him. Me too, 100%. I think there's uh, more than enough evidence that even the skeptical folks uh, should say, well, we should at least be investigating this thing. And plus, my grandmother saw one, and my grandmother wouldn't lie to me. No. <laughs> so. well, I've, got a, I've got a question for you. What would sure. be more impressive to you if we really landed on the moon in 1968, or if our technology was so good in the in the film studio that we really made it look like we landed on the moon? Well, my brother, we're really going into the weeds. Um, we're, we're, I have uh, heard it convincingly argued to me that we probably did, in fact, go to the moon. Um, I haven't been convinced that that's not the case. I am convinced that NASA was up to a lot of trickery with some of their old footage. There are videos you can watch where the astronauts are clearly on wires and they're shooting in studios. But a lot of that stuff is them training and, and getting ready to, to, to go to the moon. Um, and there were some publicity shots I know that they used that they said were from space, but were actually uh, shot here terrestrially. Um, right. But I think that's just more a case of a publicist being overeager with some photos. Um, but there, there is uh, some genuine suspiciousness. I will say that if it were to be revealed uh, that we faked the moon landing, I would almost be more proud of America for pulling that prank on the entire world than I would be if we if we actually landed on the moon. Uh, but for the record, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, that we probably did go to the moon. I haven't Got been it. there to verify the flags there, but I, I assume. <laughs> Very good. Well, that's part of your uh, your mission going forward. Do you do you have strong feelings on the subject? No, I just think it's so funny to think about. It's so funny to think about the idea that maybe we pulled a prank just to stick it to the Soviet Union and just to prove like how far ahead we are. Again, kind of like you, that almost gives me more satisfaction than if we were to really have landed on the moon. I think the biggest thing for me is because, man, I, I wish I could ask Susan this uh, since she's the ex NASA employee. Um, yeah, she's I, probably I, laughing at us right now, I'm sure. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, what I would love to know is, it, like it does seem like we did so much so fast, you know, between Kennedy announcing let's do this and boom, you know, in 68, we really do it. It does seem like stuff stalled out kind of after that. I think it was that ability to do things so quickly that made people my age think, oh my gosh, by the year 2000, 
you know, the world's going to look a certain direction. And it does feel like things just didn't go quite as quickly in the direction I thought and many of my contemporaries thought. So I'm curious as to why. You know, I just would love to talk about that more. I think that human innovation can't be discounted. Um, I think Philip Corso was kind of a goofy fellow, uh, but I've always been intrigued by his notion of uh, using flying flying saucer technology uh, to advance things. I think there there could very well be a kernel of truth there, um, but it's it's also the kind of thing that where if uh, it could be definitively proven to me that all flying saucer videos were were hoaxes, there was never anything to it. I wouldn't want to know that. I like living in a world where that that there's a possibility that that's true. Um, so I, I acknowledge that up front that I want that to be true. Um, right, that's about Bigfoot. Like I don't think there's a real Bigfoot, but man, I love this possibility that maybe there is this weird society of these Bigfoot creatures. I love that. One thing that kept me over my fascination with Bigfoot was. Um, I think it was Joe Rogan, uh, while I'm plugging podcasts, who could be listening to right now? Not that he needs a plug, but the Joe Rogan experience was actually a fascinating episode. First one I've ever, you ever heard of Joe Rogan? Oh, I've watched, uh, I've watched his podcast on YouTube a lot. Oh, he's fantastic. There is a, a early episode where he had Neil deGrasse Tyson on what forever endeared uh, him to my heart. Cause I, you know, I'm not an MMA fan. I didn't watch Fear Factor. I barely remember news radio. Uh, yeah. But he had an episode where he had Neil deGrasse Tyson, of all people, on, and they discussed whether or not the moon landing is fake. Go find it. It's like a 45, 50-minute discussion. And yeah. at the end of it, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson convincingly proves the case that we did go to the moon. But I like that Joe Rogan was able to get him back on his heels so many times and, and to come back at him with evidence. It's just a fascinating episode. Uh, but on Bigfoot, uh, he said that if we found a Bigfoot, we definitively captured it. And we, you know, we put it in a cage or a zoo or someplace, and that would just really be um, another animal in a zoo that that wouldn't be um, that wouldn't be as exciting. And we have many animals already in the zoo that are absolutely fascinating, absolutely. Uh, rather than focusing on this on this other one that might exist. It would just be a you know a larger ape, a larger monkey. <laughs> How are we end up classifying it? But I have heard the when you get really nutty, the the thoughts that there there's a secret society and they have advanced technology living in the woods. And sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, I love it. If you really want to get down to it, and man, we're we're so far from publishing. I promise we're going to pivot back before people turn the the show off. But if you really get down to it, I'm uh, more than half convinced anymore about Elon Musk and some other folks that are trying to prove that reality is a simulation. I'm on board with that. I, that makes sense to me. I'm looking at the difference between uh, you know video games in my lifetime, from Atari to Red Dead Redemption One to Red Dead Redemption Two, and I'm like, oh yeah, but we could totally create an entire reality within 10 to 20 years. That's that's a thing that we could do, and if we can do it, then how do we know we haven't done it? Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, it's it's uh, it's fascinating stuff to think about, and I'm yeah. willing to entertain it all. That's how this goes from a friendly podcast about writing and publishing to a cult. <laughs> yeah, what was the name of that weird late night uh, radio show that was always on when I was like in high school and stuff? Uh, coast to Coast. Yeah, that weird stuff. And my brother, what was the guy's name? Who, oh, who George it? George Norris, the second one. Art uh, Bell. Art, Art Bell was the first one. Oh, my goodness gracious. Oh, man. Okay. Bring it back to publishing. Okay. Well, I listen to that stuff just for, you know, I write sci-fi. Um, yeah. And um, 
I always say that the conspiracy theories, even if they're all lies, are the best science fiction out there because those guys are really thinking about how to try to suck in the rubes and overcome those objections of uh, plausibility. I like that. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So true or not, it will sharpen your uh, your storytelling skills. Um, so let's talk about the math inspectors. Uh, your series. Um, you worked with a co-author. Let me make sure I get her uh, name correct here. Emily uh, Bover. Am I saying that right? Emily Bover. That's right. So tell us a little bit about the math inspectors and that series and what readers can look forward to. Sure. So here is an example. This is the uh, fifth book, book in the series, The Case of the Forgotten Mine. Uh, there's five books in the series so far. Uh, it was, the first book was the second book I published. And, you know, I had written these, these short stories that I was thinking originally were more like Encyclopedia Brown. And I want to write something about math. So I took it to Emily who is a friend of mine. She is similar to me. She also has eight kids. She's a stay-at-home parent. She has even less time than me, though, because she homeschools them. So oh, she wow. really doesn't have extra time. You know, I at least can send my kids off to school generally, and I can get something done, but she does not have that time. But anyways, uh, Emily and I, I was like, I don't know what this is, but maybe we could make it into a book. And so we started fooling around with it and we realized they weren't going to be short stories. We would just we would just write that first book. And from the outset, I sort of think what, what she and I wanted to do was we wanted something that was kind of about math, but not too heavy on the math. Um, we kind of wanted it a kid to read it and think, yeah, math is kind of cool, you know. Uh, and we also wanted it to sort of have that sort of Scooby-Doo sort of gang feel. My favorite book growing up was called um, The Mad Scientist Club by Bertrand Brindley, who was kind of similar to Susan Quinn in that he was a rocket scientist and he worked for NASA. And uh, the, the I think he might have worked for the Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh, and he wrote this book that was my favorite book in the world called The Mad Scientist Club, uh, which was just this group of boys who had a cool, you know, uh, you know, a fort and a clubhouse and they'd hang out. They'd make cool stuff and they'd get into trouble. And so those are the kind of books I loved. And I love Scooby-Doo. And so when we wrote Math Inspectors, we wanted the math to be cool. Uh, we wanted the kids to be likable. And uh, and kind of, you know, the, the kind of place that you'd want to revisit. So it's set in fictional Ravensburg, New York, which I apologize to whatever farmer we uh, we took their field. Uh, we, we, we know the place on the GPS where it's located and we haven't asked that farmer uh, for permission to use his field as the setting. <laughs> so, so I apologize. So you maybe got fans just showing up at random. This is where it's supposed to be. <laughs> right, right. But it's in upstate New York. That's where our little town is. And, uh, you know, really, it's kind of like a cozy mystery series in the sense that uh, it's that kind of kooky, quirky town where you'd like to revisit each time. We've written five books in the series. Uh, in that main sort of series that we've written, there's going to be six books. So we've got one more book to go. It's going to be a big book, and it's going to kind of finish the main series. Uh, in addition to that, 
uh, we've written some, uh, we, we publish, I mean, written isn't the right word. We put together this Christmas, some math inspector branded like uh, blank line journals. Um, hold on just a second. I think I need some help. Yeah. Just, you, we're going to have to pause for a second. I'll tell you what, I will do a live reading. That's what I do in such times. Yes. There that. we go. Get ready, folks. We'll uh, skip here to a bit of Manicure Bones and the Giant Robot Beans, Chapter 8. This is the first time Ellicott Skullworth is being introduced to Banneker Bones and his family. No one answered, so Ellicott knocked again. The oversized oak door swung slowly open. The room beyond was immense, but all Ellicott could see were the four dark brown velociraptors standing in the center of it. All four dinosaurs turned their heads in unison at the creaking of the oak door's hinges. Ellicott took a step back. Their yellow eyes narrowed, and each of the velociraptors snarled, revealing four sets of sharp teeth. I'm sorry, Ellicott said. Wrong room. My mistake. The raptors raised their six-inch black claws and charged forward, moving so fast they blurred. Ellicott knew he'd never reach the staircase before they reached him. He wouldn't even have time to turn around before they ate him up. And then a caveman came out of nowhere and charged the raptors, swinging a club and growling as loudly as the dinosaurs. The raptors stopped themselves charging Ellicott and turned back to defend themselves, but it was no use. The caveman moved much faster than they could. He struck two raptors across the head with his club. Their yellow eyes glazed over. Then the raptors collapsed to the floor and disappeared as though they'd never existed. The caveman leapt to the right, club held high, and smashed a third raptor's jaw. It, too, collapsed and disappeared. The caveman didn't even pause before spinning back around and hurling his club at the final raptor, uh, which disappeared the moment the club struck its eye. And are we good? We are good. Sorry, that is part of my, that is my main job. My main job is being a stay-at-home parent, and uh, I could tell out of the corner of my eye that I had to attend to that, so we're good. Good. I'm a stay-at-home dad as well, uh, full-time. I've just got the one, though, um, so I, I, I can't Never <laughs> claim to be as busy. Never it takes a, a special kind of fellow to be prolific, both in, in writing and uh, biologically prolific, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Math Inspectors, the main series will end with this next book. Book six will be the grand finale. It'll be a big one. Uh, we we have some math inspector branded, you know, blank line journals. There's like a math inspector's blank comic book thing. That's just for kids who really enjoy the series and want something else. We're working on our first workbook for the math inspectors. It's going to be called, uh, it's called uh, uh, just like, it's called like a math workbook only fun. Uh, and it'll it'll bring a lot of math inspector stuff into the workbook concept. And then Emily is also kind of hard at work thinking about um, some shorter math inspector mysteries, kind of going back to that original idea I had that they would be more similar to Encyclopedia Brown, that they would be these short little self-contained little chapters that had little mysteries. She's always wanted to do a math inspector versions of that. So something like a five minute mystery. So she's working on that concept too. Now, I have no idea when any of this will get done, 
Is there um, a launch date for the sixth book that we can look forward to? No, I would love to have it ready for next Christmas, but I have no idea what this next four or five months is going to look like. I will know by September, but I don't know yet. If I don't get it out um, by this Christmas, it'll be spring of next of the following year. So what uh, what is that process like working with uh, Emily as a co-author? How do you go back and forth and decide who does what and how often? Yeah, great question. And uh, for us, the way it kind of works is I usually sketch out the bones of the story. Um, so I usually come up with the first draft. And then her job is to then take it and kind of try to get it closer to its final length. Uh, so if a book was supposed to be 25,000 words, I might deliver the first draft at 15 to 16,000 words, and then she expands it. And, you know, she's great at a lot of things. She's wickedly funny. And so she's great at figuring out the really funny, quirky stuff that goes on in the town or between the characters. And she's really great at details. I'm not a great detail guy. And so oftentimes I just want to move forward and get to the next thing. And she's really good about details and figuring out that kind of stuff. And, you know, one of the things that she and I have figured out, oops, something happened. Are you good? I'm good. Something we're, messed up we're here. Uh, one of the things she's really good at and uh, we figured out by working together is that she'll have an intuition about something it feels like it's. It, it feels like we're kind of stuck on an issue. A lot of times, I feel annoyed, and she kind of insists. And I would say a hundred percent of the time, she's been right. Like it always makes the story better. Like when she's like, "No, I really think," you know. Whereas my tendency would be just speed. Right? Let's just move. Let's just keep going. Let's just get it right. She is really good about saying, no, we really need to figure this out, or this needs to be changed, or that detail needs to be different. And when she's done that, it almost always makes the story or the finished product better. So what um, what is your process, both with Emily and, and when you're working on your own? Because I know you illustrate the uh, life of, um, the biblical life of uh, Remy um, Mordor. Am I saying that right? Remy Muldoon, no problem. Remy Muldoon, my, my yeah. eyesight is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so you you do some of the illustrating on that, and I assume you've done uh, some of the covers for your, your books as well. How much of this are you doing yourself? How much of this are you outsourcing to others, and what sorts of things are you outsourcing? Great question. So The Big Life of Remy Muldoon is a four-book series for – you know, reluctant readers and the kinds of kids who love books like The Diary of a Wimpy Kid or Big Nate. I am not as good of a cartoonist as as either one of those, as, as Lincoln Pierce or, or Jeff Kenny. Um, Jeff Kenny has a name that sounds like mine. Uh, you know, we're both Kenny, but he has approximately $100 million in the bank, and I do not have $100 million in the bank. Um, Big Life Does of Remy Muldoon. Uh, shared, shared name get you any kind of uh, boost? Yeah, I, you know, you would sure. Maybe that's the only reason I've had any success, Robert. 
<laughs> I'm maybe sure that's not true. <laughs> I would Smith, I would really be sucking water. So, um, no. Uh, okay, so for the big life of Remy Muldoon, what I do is I uh, I kind of sketch out the story, uh, and I start writing words, and I usually write about ooh, a quarter of the words before I go back and I start drawing the pictures. And so then I start drawing the pictures for that first quarter of the book. So in the four Remy Muldoon books, there's about 600 illustrations uh, in those four books. And so, you know, I, I draw the illustrations. Now, I'm not a professional artist. I'm a kid who loved to draw. So my drawings look like a kid who loved to draw who's now 43. They don't look like a professional illustrator. That's fine. Uh, so I, I do, you know, and once I'm doing the illustrations, I think of more plot line for that book. So then once I've done, you know, 25% of the illustrations, I sort of understand most of the rest of the book. So then I keep writing and I keep drawing and I keep writing and I keep drawing until I get to the end. Well, that's going to be um, a fun I, way to keep the projects fresh for you if you're drawing some and then writing and then writing others and then drawing. Totally. And uh, and I would love to do more of those books uh, if somebody, if they started selling like crazy or, uh, you know, somebody paid me a big pile of money to do a bunch of Rumi Muldoon books. I would love to keep doing those because what's more fun than, you know, drawing silly and funny pictures and trying to write things that, you know, make people laugh. Uh, so I love that series. It's just, you know, it's not a huge seller. Um, I illustrated my first picture book when Mr. Push came to shove. And that was really fun to do. I kind of had the whole idea for the story in my head. I wrote all the words first and then I did the illustrations. Uh, I have done some illustrations on some of the other books, but in all of those cases, when I had the ability to go back and have them professionally illustrated, I have. Uh, all the other books that I did any illustrations for, I thought working with a professional would improve the quality of the books, so I've done that. Uh, I actually don't think it would improve Remy Muldoon because it's, it's a particular style, uh, or when Mr. Push came to shove, because again, the story revolves around my personal style, and so it's just different. That makes sense. And then, are you uh, are you doing all the formatting for your books on your own as well, both paperback and ebook? No. So yeah, I'll get to your question on on outsourcing. So from the beginning, I've always outsourced my formatting to Polgeris uh, Studios. Uh, Jason Anderson, he's awesome. He's out of Australia. He does great work. He's a really good good man, good to work with. So I've always done formatting with him. Uh, for pretty much all my books uh, in terms of the other stuff, you know, I try to outsource what I can because, you know, the writing and the illustrations that I do is, is plenty enough for me. So I've always tried to find cover designers. Uh, I've always tried to find, you know, it took a while to find the right illustrator, um, editing, there have been things that I've edited myself and I've suffered because of it, you know, as much as possible. I try to get my hand my stuff into the hands of a good editor. Uh, 
I've had the privilege of working with David Gatewood, uh, a great, great editor for many of my books. And, uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful to work with someone like him. He makes me a better writer. Uh, so again, I try to, I've tried to find the right kind of team. Uh, more recently, I've been working with Carrie Knudsen for most of my covers and she's amazing. She's incredible. At, at covers and really fun to work with. So, which uh, for those that might want to work with her, which of your covers has she designed? So she has designed all of my picture book covers. Now, my original when Mr. Push came to shove picture book cover was done by me, but then I had her redo it. So all of my picture books have been done by her. Uh, she's also done uh, my. I have this uh, adult cozy mystery series called the Hope Walker Mysteries. My pen name is Daniel Carson. She does those as well. And she's been working on some others that we quite haven't quite released yet. But she does a lot of other graphic stuff for me as well. And again, she's amazing. And I assume she's uh, available work for hire for those who adore your covers and want, and want to reach out to her. Yeah, no, she is. I also did a couple awesome covers with a, uh, with a group and, and I just haven't written the books yet. I've got these two great fantasy novel covers that I'm just sitting on. I can't wait to, to write them and release them because I love the covers so darn much. Uh, and Do those you uh, have the covers designed before you you finish the book? Sometimes, sometimes. In this particular instance, I had this idea for a book, and I thought to myself, if the cover's good enough, this thing will work. Because uh, I didn't know if I could get the cover to be good enough. I really I'm smiling because I, I do the same thing. About halfway through when I know that I need to finish the book, I get Stephen Novak of Novak Illustration, make sure we plug Stephen, um, and I get him to go ahead and design the cover because once the cover exists, well, by God, there's going to be a book. Oh. It's a wonderful oh. motivator. And, of course, that's what I thought myself with these other two books. I just haven't had time yet, but I will. I'm going to write these books, uh, and I love the covers. I just... I need space in my life to do it. I will though. And then uh, how about uh, editing and, and also how many drafts of your books are you typically looking to do before they're, they're ready to go? Yep. Uh, three drafts usually for me before it goes to the editor. So let me explain. Um, uh, my first draft is not a super clean draft, but it's not a puke all over the page draft. So my first draft, when every time I come back to it, I'm reading previous words and cleaning up some of the stuff. Uh, I'm not just the throw all the words down and so it's an incoherent mess. So the way I say it for myself is the first draft is where I tell myself the story. The second draft is where I'm trying to tell someone else the story. And so by the end of the second draft, I hope that it's intelligible to somebody else. The third draft is where I make it good. And then when I work with my editor, who's fantastic, that's when we try to make it great. And it's not always great, but we try to make it great during that process. So that third draft, what uh, what specifically are you doing to make the, the book great? 
Yeah, so the things I really focus on in my third draft are, number one, chapter endings. So that's the first. So uh, if I haven't cleaned up chapter endings in the second draft, the first thing I'm looking at in the third draft is chapter endings, making sure the chapters end correctly, that they end making people want to turn the page, if possible, right? You know, when I've really done well. Uh, and so that's the first thing I look at. Then the second thing I look at uh, is... Before we move on to the second thing, what uh, what sort of chapter endings work best to get to keep readers invested? Yeah, so I've done a variety of things, but it's, it's, uh, it's I guess, I don't know exactly what to tell you other than I'm trying to find what works at the end of that chapter to create some sort of, I don't want to say cliffhanger, because then you read all my books, you're like, well, there's not a cliffhanger at the end of that chapter. I don't really mean cliffhanger, but I sort of mean cliffhanger. Like something, you know, some new question or something that propels things forward, but instead of just continuing, I stop and it makes the person want to turn the page. So, so that's what I'm trying to do. And I wish I could say it better, but that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, the second thing I do in the third draft is characterization. So I'm really looking hard at each character. And if they're my funny character, I got to find ways for them to be funnier. And if they're my you know, menacing character, then I need to bring more of that. And if it's my hero, are they being heroic enough? So that's the kind of stuff I'm really trying to punch up in the third draft. And then I'm really trying to find, since I do do some mysteries, I'm trying to find where are the gaps, where are the holes, have I still, is something out of place? Is the uh, suspense good enough at the end? Is the, uh, is the resolution of the mystery good enough? Um, but I'm not someone who does 10 drafts or 15. Uh, I try to get to the end of a third draft and then give it to a very, very good editor. That's what I do. And are you employing uh, critique partners or beta readers or anything like that? No. When I first uh, started writing, I did critique partners uh, because it was really helpful for me to, to sort of get beyond that fear of sharing my work. Personally, that was a great asset for me to be able to share work with critique partners. But at some point, I found that for me personally, uh, it was better for me to work with one person, an editor, that I really trusted rather than multiple people. And I say this because I've been a critique partner and I've been the person asked to, to give advice. And oftentimes I give advice that is trying to change the person's story, right? And I, I think that happens a fair amount with some critique partner situations where you've got this committee of people who are all giving you different advice about how to change your story. Now, I think the real value in critique partners for me early on, and, and even now if I were to use them, would be, hey, I think your writing is a little weak in terms of your use of passive verbs or, Hey, I think, you know, there's, there's some, some mechanical weaknesses in your writing that you could really improve. 
from a story perspective, though, I really think someone's got to listen to their gut. And if they need to, maybe one trusted person who, for me, is my editor. That makes sense to me. I've got a group of uh, critique partners I've, I've had forever, the young adult cannibals. I, know I never shut up about them. Um, but I know them well enough that when they're telling me that I need to change something, I can hear whether it's actually something that's an issue or if it's just plain that they, if they were writing my story, they would do it a different way, which of course they would. That, that's why people are buying their books uh, for that specific uh, viewpoint. Uh, but a lot of times I'll find that if they suggest an issue, it's not the fix that they're suggesting is correct. But if I know that something's an issue that I can go back and I can find a solution for it. I'm always fascinated because, you know, there's as many different ways to write a book as there are writers. And I'm always curious about process. Yeah, no, I think, you know, in the particular critique group I was in, I think what I was seeing is I was seeing some writers who weren't able to finish what they were working on because they were getting so much different advice. And I think the worst kind of critique is the kind of critique that stops people from writing. So if you're in a situation where everybody's continuing to write and continuing to produce, it sounds like you all have a very mature way of handling it. But I do think the worst kind of criticism you can give to someone is the kind of critique that gets them to stop writing. Because, I don't know, I love writing. I, I love people going out there and making stuff. I mean, who are we to tell someone else? You know, you don't write stuff. The market will tell them whether or not people want to read their stuff. I'm okay with that. I did that once. I, uh, <laughs> I've confessed to this before, so it's not a shock. I told Susan K. Quinn not to self-publish. Oh, my Lord. I've never been so wrong. <laughs> oh, you've known her forever? Oh, yeah. So, well, we were oh, wow. IT partners back in the day. We were swapping middle grade sci-fi stories. She's oh. one of the first people that uh, read and helped make better Banneker Bones. Um, oh, and she had first come to me back when uh, I was uh, – I'm, I, I try to be Switzerland. People are people always ask me, well, how do you feel about self-publishing versus traditional publishing? Yes. And I don't have a strong opinion. I don't care about publishing methods. If you're writing a book that readers love and you're happy and they're happy, however that was accomplished, great. Go and do, do more of that. So I'll talk to literary agents. I'll talk to editors. I'll talk to indie authors. I like everybody. If you're, if you're engaging readers, I'm interested in you. Uh, but at the time, I was uh, a little bit more opinionated on the subject, and she, she ended up turning me around rather than, uh, <laughs> than the other way. Um, I think it's, that, uh, go ahead. it's a fascinating subject, and uh, I agree. Like, I'm not um, – I, I have no idea ideology here. I, I have stuff that I think works or doesn't work based on my opinion, which may not be right. I do think in general, when people ask me or email me, I oftentimes say, you know, if I was doing, you know, if it's middle grade, I would try uh, traditional first. Um, I still, okay, let's, so let's just look at facts. Like there is a certain amount of lottery winning that you do at any part of publishing. Uh, Lee Child makes more money than, you know, independent thriller writers who make it big. So, you know, obviously the people who hit the lottery in the traditional game seem to make it a little bit bigger than even people who hit the lottery in the independent game. 
Uh, that being said, though, if I was starting out and writing thrillers, I would go indie because I, I can see a real path in front of me about how you could make a living, right? Uh, whereas I think there's a ton of striking out you can do trying to go traditional to be that next great thriller writer. I think there's a real kind of path that you can see. You may not achieve it, but you can see. Now for middle grade though, I don't think it's so clear. I'm not sure it's it's so clear to say, okay, if you just indie publish middle grade enough or in the right way, there's a pretty clear path into to how you could make a living. I'm not sure that's clear at all. Uh, so I would always recommend people, if they want to try, to try going the traditional route first. And I don't know how many traditional middle grade authors actually make a living either, but I know the odds of making a living indie publishing middle grade isn't great. I mean, it's, it's, it's not as good as it would be for romance or mystery or thriller. So. Yeah. I think the odds of making a living writing just period. Um, not very good. About off either way. So get, get started. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about marketing because people will be kicking me if I had you on here and I didn't ask you about it. Uh, how do you market your books? What have you found to be the most successful marketing techniques? Well, if you'd ask my wife, she would say I'm terrible at marketing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, really, I'm like the idiot introvert author that just just let me make books, right? I heard years ago some author tell some kind of newer author, well, talking about the books is the business we're in. Uh, you know, I mean, there was a reason that for a long time, the big authors just produced one book a year. Part of it was because they spent a fair amount of the year talking about the book that was being released. So I get that. I just don't really like doing it. So in terms of marketing, uh, I don't really do a lot. Uh, you know, I have played around with advertising through Amazon marketing services quite a bit over the last year and a half. My success is really scattered. Uh, I know if I spend a lot of money, my revenue will go up. Uh, but I have yet to really find the sweet spot for uh, a good ROI. So this last year, I spent more money on advertising through AMS. My revenue went up, but my net profit really didn't go up. So uh, this year, I'm taking a different approach uh, because my cash flow is hurting a little bit right now. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of turning off the AMS ads for a little while, uh, and I'm going to take uh, a new a new swing at it later on this year. Um, so I don't do much for marketing other than try to have great covers as much as I can. Uh, I try to work on my descriptions. Although, quite honestly, I need to go back through all my product pages and tweak them right now. Um, and then, you know, I, I occasionally advertise. That's it. 
I've had uh, mixed mixed success with AMS myself. I've been meaning to get involved with Facebook. I haven't. One thing that has helped is a permanent uh, as the perma free books. Uh, we'll see what happens with uh, with Banneker Bones two as it comes out yet this year and three. Uh, but certainly, it's boosted the book of David. I've occasionally done giveaways on the other books. I, mean, I notice you're right now at least not doing perma free on your series. Has that always been true, or if you had mixed luck with that? Yeah, so the only series that I've tried perma-free with is the Project Gemini series. It's an odd series, and I'm trying to, to reboot it uh, with some different marketing and a different strategy. But because it just wasn't selling, I thought I'll try the first two books perma-free, see if I can get people invested in the series. I haven't had luck with that. Uh, I have not tried perma-free on any of the other books. Um, so why? You know, I've talked with quite a few middle grade authors. I have never been convinced it's a great strategy for me. Um, you know, something like The Math Inspectors, that first book is my big seller. And when I add new books, it seems to increase the sales of that first book. Uh, and I've been, you know, I guess I've been scared to, to really take that income out by trying something different. So I haven't. Uh, would I possibly try it in the future? Sure. Now with my cozy mystery series for adults, uh, I'm more likely to try that at some point. I only have two books out in the series. When I get the first five books out in the series, I almost certainly will try perma-free on the first one and to see how that goes. Uh, and maybe when we get all six books of the Math Inspector series out, maybe we will play with Permafree at some point. Uh, but no, I haven't tried it a lot. And then, um, oh, I had another question right on the tip of my tongue, and it's 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 gone away. How shameful! Um, yeah, I think uh, I think it's gone. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it was a burning one, too. I'm going to be kicking myself later. Like, why didn't you ask that? Oh, well, sure. uh, I do have some questions. Um, I'm sorry? Was it marketing related or advertising? Um, or it was. Um, hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's gone. Okay. Uh, it'll, it'll come back to me. I did want to ask you um, about, well, I've got some questions for you from my fiction workshop. I mentioned the, the contenders were adorable. Okay. There's 10 of us. We're spelling it with a 10. So C-O-N-10 D-E-R-S. We're, yes. we're crazy about it. You're already <laughs> and I had, uh, I decided I'm asking uh, authors these questions, but why not get the listeners uh, who I know are going to be paying attention? Let's find out the questions they want to have answered. So here's what the contenders have come up with you with for you. Uh, they want to know how long should your average chapter be, and I'll add to that: how long do you do you uh, shoot for for a word count for your books? Yeah, great question. I think when I first got in uh, to the business and was on Twitter and following agents, it was such a big question. You know, seven years ago, six years ago, agents would always get asked these questions like, how long is a middle grade novel? How long is a YA? I'm not sure those questions get asked quite as much these days. Um, I don't think it matters quite as much. Uh, and I've seen authors with, uh, with a variety of success on how to handle this. For me, though, if you're going to target that age group I talked about, which is that younger middle grade 
reader, that younger part of the youth audience, the 7, 8, 9, 10, I generally try to keep those books for myself between 15 to 25,000 words. Uh, so that's kind of what I shoot for with those kinds of books. Um, if I'm going to do what I would consider a real middle grade novel, so like these are my two middle grade, I've got three middle grade novels, but here's two of them, The Beef Jerky Gang and Teenage Treasure Hunter. These are more in the 45 to 55,000 word kind of count area. So to me, that's like a real middle grade novel, although you could certainly have a middle grade novel much longer than that. But to me, that's a real novel. As opposed to uh, Math Inspectors, this fifth book in the series is the longest in the series, and it's 30,000. So, you know, that series goes from 20,000 to 30,000. So that would be my recommendation. If you're going to do middle grade chapter books, again, depending on which part of the market you're targeting, that's how I would do it. Shorter books, shorter chapters, keep things moving, lots of white space on the page. Yep, for sure. Makes sense to me. I thought of my question. Um, yep. How? What is the best way to get reviews for your book? What have you had success with? Uh, you know, reviews are are tricky. You know, you find some some people, indie authors, who reviews just seem to go up, you know, all the time, and and it's because their books are selling in in pretty massive amounts. Uh, ultimately, that's what you want. You want your books selling. That's how you're going to get reviews organically. I see both with my own books and some other people, sometimes you get more reviews than than really the book sells. And I'm not sure how much it helps you. I do think there probably is some truth though that getting that first 10 or that first 20 reviews is pretty helpful. So what are some things I've tried? You know, I ask people. I sometimes will say, hey, is this the kind of book you would like? If so, I might gift you a copy through Amazon and maybe I'll make the price a little lower so it's easier for me to do that and I'll just gift them a copy. Uh, I I've think done that. It's a yeah. 99 cent day and now I'm giving out 20 copies. Sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. And I've had some success doing that. My wife, you know, she's got some email lists. Every once in a while she'll say, Dan really needs a few more reviews. Um, Ultimately, though, I mean, I, I don't do any sort of weird tactic to get reviews or anything like that. Uh, when I first came into the business, I would look at other people's reviews, and there was so many, like, odd reviews that looked kind of fake to me. Uh, you know, it just looked like, where are these even coming from? And every once in a while, I'll get one of those reviews and I'll think, I don't even understand, like, how am I getting this review? So in general, I just, I ask people, I'll post on Facebook. Uh, you know, I usually don't get huge response from anything like that. From myself, it's usually been when I get a book that starts to sell, I just start getting organic reviews. That makes sense. Uh, another question here from the contenders. Uh, what are the current trends in middle grade? What has been played out and is now considered tired? Golly, I'm not sure I know. I'd be curious what you think on this. Um, 
you know, middle grade is interesting. And particularly if you segment down to the younger middle grade, like I do, one of the reasons Emily and I decided to not make the math inspectors longer is because we don't have our readers for very long. Um, you know, for the most part, when you're 12, you're done reading the math inspectors. You know, when you're 14, you might still dip into Percy Jackson. You know, that's a series that can hold kids for much longer. But for something like the math inspectors, it's pretty targeted. You know, we're going after third, fourth, and fifth graders. And then for the most part, our readers move on. So for that reason, we decided, you know, I don't know that it would really help us that much to make it a super long series. Okay, so there's a reason I brought that up. Tell me your question again, because I, I brought that up for a reason. You were saying oh, what? I want to know what, uh, what's played out. What are the current trends in middle grade? What, uh, what should my workshop folks be focused on writing? Right, so what's played out? So on the one hand, there might be, I mean, this is a, a question oftentimes we ask agents. And agents have one perspective on what's played out because they see what's come through the submission pile and they don't want to have maybe another superhero series or something like that. But I'm not sure that has any, I'm not sure that has much relation to readers, right? Like I think readers, they like same, but different. So I have no idea what's played out in middle grade. I mean, if it was like the rest of the culture, well, maybe we're coming to a point where there's going to start to be less superhero stuff. You know, it felt, felt like we just went through this grand renaissance of superhero movies. So maybe we're we're playing out that a little no, bit. No, no, I'm hoping and praying that you're wrong. All right. <laughs> yeah. But is that really the true? I mean, I could imagine movie critics and agents being tired of that stuff, but I'm not sure viewers are necessarily tired. And I certainly don't think readers are tired of that. Like there's a reason that someone who loves cozy mysteries might read 150 cozy mystery books in a year because they like same but different. I think readers are kind of like that. So I don't know that anything is played out or tired out. I mean, a few years ago, we certainly said in YA that vampires, you know, were, were played out and maybe they are. Is there, but for a nine or 10 year old reader who is only nine or 10 year old years old for one or two years, I mean, is anything played out? I don't know. My guess would be no. What do you think? That's a good point. That's a one one wonderful thing about the middle grade audience is that a lot of this stuff is always going to be new to them. They don't know that we're you know borrowing influence uh, yeah. from something a little bit greater. Uh, one of my little little top secrets, just you and I talk and pretend we're not on air. Um, uh, when Banneker Bones and the Alligator people, there's a technique I'm using um, uh, to hopefully build suspense. We'll we'll see how it plays out, but my beta readers assure me it's working. Uh, that I'm taking directly from Breaking Bad, although obviously at a middle grade format. And and when I had the thought, I was like, oh well, middle grade readers probably haven't seen Breaking Bad. That's free and available right. to me. I can I can steal that technique and and move it over here. Totally. I mean, if Shakespeare can steal from the Bible, uh, then uh, and and use it in a different context, then certainly 
Uh, there's no problem with you doing the same thing. I, I, I think that stuff makes total sense. So the same thing that's bad for us, we, we don't get middle grade re re readers, especially young middle grade readers for a long time. There's quick turnover, which means our stuff. I mean, if Math Inspectors was successful five years ago, then there's a good chance that in two years, it'll still be somewhat successful to those brand new kids and parents looking for something. That's my hope. And then hopefully when uh, your dedicated readers get older, they'll reread the books to their kids and start yeah. a whole new generation for you. That's right. Wouldn't that be great? That's the, uh, that's the dream anyway. Yeah. Uh, another uh, question from the workshop. Um, how can we hope to make our work stand out in a crowded marketplace? What are your, what are your techniques for doing that? Yeah, this is, uh, this is good. I, I don't know. I, so let's talk about the idea of authorial voice. Um, you know, it's something that, that I remember from high school, English teachers saying, ooh, this has strong voice, or this doesn't have strong voice. And I never really understood what it meant so much. I actually really like what Dean Wesley Smith has to say about voice. And oftentimes he'll talk about voice when he talks about his favorite show, which is The Voice. And I've heard him talk about uh, this before several times in which, you know, The Voice is such a great example. It's not that they're looking for just a good voice. There seems to be a lot of people that can go on there and who can sing. They're looking for something different, right? So I always think of my favorite band when I was little, because my older brothers listened to them, was Boston. So when Boston released their debut album titled Boston, I think, back in, I don't know, 76 or 77, whenever that came out, it was the biggest selling debut album of all time. Now, if you were to sit around and listen to that whole album with my wife, she would say, all the songs sound the same. <laughs> I think my wife would say that uh, as well, and they'd, they'd both be wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, you can find other bands kind of like that. But, but the, the thing is, at the time, I think, other than just being awesome, it was different. It just had a different sound. And, you know, Dean Wesley Smith says, you know, that's what these – that's what these judges are looking for. Yeah, they're looking for something good, but they're really looking for something different. Okay, so then how do you do that? Well, I think the worst advice can be sometimes just to tell somebody, hey, go be different. It's really hard to just go be different. Like it's sometimes it seems like it's really hard to build an awesome house if you're given unlimited land and an unlimited budget. Instead of an awesome house, oftentimes you end up with these grotesque McMansions with like different roof gables that go everywhere and they just don't even have a sense of place. The much better way to build an awesome house is to give Frank Lloyd Wright this really odd a plot of land and say, yeah, you've got this river and this water and it kind of has to cantilever over it. It's going to be tough. I don't know how you're going to do it. And so he kind of has to react to his environment. 
I think that's a much better way to do something unique. Okay, so then the last thing I think of is I think of the Beatles. The Beatles learn how to play music by copying other people's music. So the way they would learn how to play a particular chord is they would go over because they heard this one guy had this awesome way of playing. So they'd go watch the awesome guy play and they'd try to play it just like him. And they'd keep trying to copy different people. And in the process, I think naturally react against those people kind of in this kind of musical dialogue. And eventually they figured out their own thing. Now, not everybody will figure out their own thing. And they'll just end up kind of sounding like everybody else. But I do think one path forward is to try and, even if it's just for your practice, try copying other people. I mean, as a like as, a, as an exercise for writing. Like, if you love J.K. Rowling, go write a short story and try to make it the most Harry Potter thing you can possibly do. And then say, okay, I also love Stephen King. And then go write a short story that's the most Stephen King sort of thing you can do. And then maybe you're ready to write your own thing. And maybe you borrow elements of each and voila, it's kind of your own new thing, right? Um, I think doing something like that is is not a bad way forward for a lot of people. I'm chuckling because I've, I've done exactly that. The uh, Book of David is intentionally written in the style of Stephen King because I've, I've just been reading him for years. Uh, it's something I did early on. I don't do it as much now, but I know it's fairly common uh, is uh, I uh, would take books that I admired and set them up, uh, prop them beside my keyboard and then retype them. Uh, and the idea oh. was even if I'm not, I can't write great words, I can at least type great words and then they'll for sure be on there. So I've I've got most of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire uh, saved in an old Word file someplace where I've just retyped it and added typos. <laughs> and that was a good way to kind of uh, get some that's cadence and some voice down. Have you done that? No, that's fascinating. That's actually pretty cool. I might try that sometime. Do a chapter or so and just do it to get the rhythm and the feel. That's really it's cool. It's a great way to avoid the terror of actually writing because there's nothing to be scared of. I mean, you know it's a good book. Just type it. I, I know this is going to be good if I just don't mess up this period. Exactly. Look at that. Look at look at this amazing thing that I have kind of right. produced. Now right. take the training wheels off and let's try it for real. I like it. No, that's really good. That is a great – that's a great exercise. I think there's a lot of things you can do like that. But I, I do think a problematic thing is just to tell somebody – Go be unique. Go find your voice. I think everybody need I, I, most people need a little help in figuring out how to do that. Plus, just uniqueness for the just for the sake of uniqueness is is not valuable. <laughs> no. So tell the uh, tell the story that you want to tell. I usually start and I, I put my uh, my my I wear my references on my sleeve. So. If you read all together now a zombie story, it's going to read a little bit like Walking Dead fan fiction, which is why the, the cause of the zombie apocalypse is Kirkman Soda, named after Robert Kirkman. Like, yeah, of course I'm going to do what the best zombie stories have done. Do you want a good zombie story or don't you? Awesome. Love it. That's great. That was actually something that I think really uh, helped me to uh, get over myself and be less terrified. Um, is to take myself less seriously. And so I'm not writing for, I'm not necessarily writing for the ages. If that, I also, I, I also simultaneously carry around the belief 
that the moment I'm dead, all of my work will become celebrated classics forever. Uh, and I won't know about it, so it's fine. Uh, and if I'm wrong, yeah, I won't know about it, it's fine. Um, right. But I, I was able to get over myself, okay, well, let's not worry about what awards we're going to win. Let's not worry about being the most original thing that ever was. Let's just write the book I would most want to read. And, yes. and that's what my books became. Totally. That is so important. Uh, I, I had to do the same thing. You know, I'm not going to win newberry awards i'm not going to win literary awards i'm not writing the next great american anything uh i mean for god's sakes i, I wasn't a kid sitting around reading uh, steinbeck uh i wasn't reading classics i was reading a pile of a hundred richie rich comic books over and over and over again. I was reading Sergeant Fury and X-Men and uh, Scrooge McDuck. And like I was reading comic books and I was reading the Mad Scientist Club over and over again. And I would read woodworking books that my dad had around and I would read the encyclopedia. Like I wasn't feeding my literary soul with the greats of Western civilization it's not what I'm writing. I'm just writing stuff that I think is fun, that I hope entertains people. And I, ultimately I'm writing the kind of stuff I would want to read. Always, um, I, I have a degree in literature and I, I try to imitate the classics a little bit. It's not a top priority for me. I've had to overcome my own snobbery from early on. Um, but, um, oh, where was I going with that? Uh, someplace, oh, uh, it, uh, but I also read a lot of Stephen King, a lot of Robin Cook, a lot of John Grisham, all the, the really popular books. And so when I went in to uh, get my degree in literature, um, I kept that in mind. I was always just a bit of, I was the skeptic in class. I would frustrate professors um, because I'd say, well, yes, no, what you're talking about is absolutely important. These books should be celebrated. I see what made them great, why people were interested in them at the time. But I also know that people pretended to read to read The Scarlet Letter and actually read it by Stephen King. So that's the, what I wanted to gravitate toward. That's what I wanted to pay attention uh, to. You know, one of the great gifts that one of my English teachers did in high school was in the middle of the year, he said, okay, we've been reading a lot of classics. And I said, sometimes I know it can be daunting. And so he said, that's why we're gonna take a break and we're going to read this book called The Abyss. And he gave us all a copy of The Abyss. And it was just such a great like break to just read something that was really good, written by a really great writer, but it wasn't quite at the same level as Jane Eyre, right? I mean, this isn't <laughs> Weather Heights. This is The Abyss. But I'll never forget that. You know, it was great. Something that uh, forever changed my perspective uh, was I used to struggle with Charles Dickens. I yeah. just didn't get it. Uh, and then I switched to uh, audiobooks of Charles Dickens and yeah. hearing it made all the difference. And I realized, oh, well, that's because when Charles Dickens was writing this stuff, most of the population was illiterate. So it was going, they were going to the pubs to hear somebody perform. And it wow. makes all the difference. Then those long speeches make sense because yeah. that's somebody going to ham it up as an actor. That's and a great you could do a hundred pages before a stranger walks into town and the plot really gets started because there isn't competition. People aren't shutting you off for Netflix. Or right. at and, the time they weren't. And then man, if you can just hang around for his endings, you know, boom. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, he killed those. 
Yeah. <laughs> Some of those beginnings were a little bit rough. I, I just, we're at a time I just don't need a hundred pages of setup before the story starts. But if I can listen to a great audiobook narrator get it to me, okay, I can passively uh, accept that. Yeah. Great point. Great point. Like two, that. Uh, two more questions from the workshop, and then I know we're running near toward the end of our time. Um, and I, I could keep you on all day, but I won't. I want to be respectful of your time so that hopefully you'll come back uh, in the future. Um, another question from the workshop. How do you balance exposition and action without losing the reader's interest with too little action or having them lose interest because they don't know enough about the characters uh, to care about that they are in danger? Yes, this is a good question. And it's something I wrestle with a little bit although not as much as someone who's writing more like big full blown novels, you know, most of my, my, uh, my young stuff, you know, we're getting to the action pretty quickly. Uh, but you know, in my adult cozy mysteries, uh, it's, it's something I think about more often and it's kind of related to what you just said in terms of the setup. So you think of a TV show, the murder always happens right away, right? Well, not in every TV show. In my favorite show of all time, Inspector Lewis, the murder, um, it oftentimes doesn't happen right away. You're introduced to the people, and I don't care. Like, I love the lingering. I love the music and the shots. Like, I'm invested, right? I love this place, so I want to return. But I could totally see someone who's not yet invested you know, watching Inspector Lewis and thinking, ah, the action's not happening quick enough for me. So in my own uh, cozy mystery, that's been an issue for me. Like, I actually don't want the murder to happen right away. But I'm trying to figure out how I make it interesting enough uh, for the person until I get to the murder. I actually don't want the murder to happen until, like, chapter six or seven but I know for my wife, when she read the second one, she thought I took a little bit too much time getting to it. Uh, so that's one thing. Then in terms of the rest of the book, action and exposition, I am not a great literary writer. I love writing dialogue. I don't have a ton of exposition. I like dialogue. So I'm more like a screenwriter than I am a professional literary writer. Dan, have Yep. So again, I, I feel more like a screenwriter. You know, I, I don't I don't write long and then have to cut out because I I'm not a huge fan of you know long descriptions and a bunch of narrative exposition. I like dialogue. That's how I like to tell my stories. That makes sense. They they read much faster that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more question from the workshop, and I, I like this one. It's a, it's a long one, so I want to read it uh, exactly for you. Uh, why write? Why not plumbing, engineering, medical or law school, real estate, etc.? What's storytelling about? What's the itch? Writing scratches where other careers don't. Being a writer is such a brutal occupation, yet so many people are drawn to the craft. Are we all insane? Dan Kenny, your thoughts? Yeah, I think we are. Uh, I think uh, for me personally, I've tried a lot of different things. I love stories and I love making things. 
and being an author helps me to do both. Like I get to make things and I get to tell stories. It's like two of my favorite things to do in the world. Like I said to you, I would be really happy just in a workshop making things out of wood all day, but I wouldn't quite be able to tell a story at the same time. Like it would, it would be a little suffocating for me. So to me, making a book is, is similar. Like I get to, in my mind, think of how something will look and how something like what the finished product will be, not just physically, but like emotionally and how the story will work. And this idea that somebody could pick it up and read it and have an experience of it. Golly, I don't, that's amazing to me. So yeah, there's other things I could do that would be fun. And I'll probably this fall go back to teaching full time because uh, my my youngest son will be finally in school full time. Uh, and I'll continue to write books, you know, and, and someday if like everything happened and I was, you know, doing great and made a ton of money to make a really good living, then maybe I wouldn't teach full time. But but I suspect that for me, I'll probably have to work full time and uh and write on the side um which is i'm fine with i'm fine with i love it i i can do it like that just fine uh there's some days where if i'm writing full time i don't really get that much done anyways so uh, i think for me to have it be that hobby for the rest of my life that generates some money and uh i get to make these things that other people love to read Man, it's amazing. It's amazing. Well, the uh, irony is for me is that once I became a full-time stay-at-home dad uh, and full-time writer uh, when, I'm, when I'm not dadding, um, was that I, after about six, seven months, I started yearning to get back out there. I'm now I'm teaching these workshops. I'm doing these podcast things to get me out of the house and interacting with people because that's where my stories are going to come from is going out there and having experiences. And you, you can't have those just here in the cozy writing office, with the Batman toys. No, you're right. Like I was thinking about that. I don't know if I, again, I might teach this fall and I don't know what I'll teach. Maybe it'll be math. And I thought if I, if I do teach math, then it would give me an excuse to finally write the series I've always wanted to write, which would be kind of like Harry Potter meets math. Uh, I call it Bally Moon. It would be School of Mathematics and Magic. And I've always, I've, I've got it sketched out. I've always wanted to read it and sometimes, or write it. And I've, sometimes I just need a really good excuse to write something else. And so if I was teaching math to a bunch of kids, that would give me a good excuse to uh, to write something else. So, yes, I love getting out there and and you know getting new material for books. Have you read uh, Fairy Swap by Susan Kaquin? No, I have not. Put it right toward the top of your list. It's not that. It's it's not Harry Potter meets math, but it is magic meets math, and it, it's it's worth your time. Uh, it's uh, fairies that. Uh, come uh, into our reality specifically to steal our math and our equations to help them improve their magic in their realm is very I, cool i will yeah that'll be great to read just to make sure i'm not doing you know what she did and plus she's a great storyteller so 
I own that I could do what she did. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's great. much, much. I'm not in much danger of uh, of that or reproducing J.K. Rowling's works. It's it's not a concern. <laughs> well, and one thing that's so great about Susan is how generous she is online to people, giving advice, uh, sharing what works and doesn't work. She's so smart. She's so generous with her time. Um, yeah, she's amazing. One last question uh, for you, and then we'll call it a podcast. Uh, what's the one piece of advice you wish uh, somebody had given you when you were first starting up? I think, uh, I think I, so I, I felt like, oh man, I know you gave me this question and I know I looked at it and I thought, I really don't have a great answer for this. Um, I don't know that there's anything I wasn't told. I felt like I had a, I mean, I, I was, I was the guy who was reading the newbies guide, you know, and following Joe Conrath. And, and I feel like the people I was reading had a pretty good idea. And I think some of the advice I was given that I didn't always take, I'm okay with. Okay. So let me say this. If this was just about money, if I would have started doing adult cozy mysteries four years ago, financially, I'd be at a different place than I am today. But for me, it's not just about money. You know, it's it's about being able to do things that I'm proud of, being able to do a variety of things. Heck, I've been a stay-at-home dad for these seven years, so I've been able to write the kind of books that my kids enjoy. You know, my wife likes the cozy mysteries, but she loves some of the picture books I do. That makes her proud. So I, I think I might put it like that. I mean, if you are someone who wants to write middle grade, but really it's more important to you that you write and you find a way to make a full living out of it, I think the advice I might give to you is maybe explore adult genre fiction first. If, I mean, if making a living is really important to you, find that place in adult genre fiction where you would be proud and happy to write books. But if you don't really care that much about, you know, making a living, if it's not the most important thing to you, then just write whatever you have energy for. Write what you have a love for. If you're three books into a series and you do not have the energy to write that fourth book, Write something else. Have fun with it. I mean, this should be fun. We get to make up stories. It shouldn't be a drudgery. If you're someone who can't get yourself to the stool every day or the chair because you're like, I don't know how to start writing, then maybe writing's not for you because writing is fun and making stories is fun. And when it's not fun, then change something. Write something new or do something else. That's my advice. Makes sense to me. It's something I say at the start of every workshop uh, is that if over the course of the of, of the five weeks meet, if I can talk you out of writing, uh, if if you're not enjoying it, and I convince you that you don't want to do it anymore, that is well worth your time and your money. Go be free. Do something that makes you happy. I agree, completely. Dude, where uh, where can esteemed audience find you online? Where they where can they learn more? Yeah, honestly, the best thing to do is to go onto Amazon and search for Daniel Kenny, K-E-N-N-E-Y. That'll show up all my books. 
Uh, if you're interested in the adult cozy mysteries, go to Daniel Carson uh, or on Facebook. You can look for author Daniel Kenny or author Daniel Carson. Either on Amazon or on Facebook is the best place to find me. Of course, I'll link to those in the show notes for those of you looking for them. Uh, make sure, esteemed audience, that you come back here on Friday for author Tommy Greenwald. That's going to be an exciting episode. Uh, as always, find out more at middlegradeninja.com. All of the backlog is posted there, as well as interviews with writers and literary agents. Uh, and then we've got a sign-off phrase that I usually ask our guests to say. And that sign-off phrase in, in justifying the ninja theme of the podcast is hiya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hiya, what have you. <laughs>